Hi, everyone. This is Sound School, the podcast with the backstory to great audio storytelling. I'm Rob. I produce this show for PRX and Transom. We were digging into some numbers the other day, and by we, I mean Jay Allison and Jennifer Jarrett at Transom and Carrie Hoffman at PRX. And by numbers, I mean how many episodes of Sound School have there been? That's what we were talking about. And the answer is simple, 20. But if you add in episodes of How Sound, which was the name of this podcast before it was Sound School, if you add those in, well, then we're talking 297 episodes. But I wanted to dig back even further, which required me to go down to my cellar and hunt for a hard drive with old work on it that I call Blue Highways. It's named for a book by William Leasty Moon, which is one of my favorites. But I can tell you about that another time. Anyway, on Blue Highways, I found all the episodes for Saltcast. That was this show before it was How Sound, before it was Sound School. Is this making sense? Back then, Saltcast was produced by PRX and the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine, where I taught for a long while. So, three different titles for this show, Sound School, How Sound, and Saltcast, and all together, they add up to 380 episodes. But you know how it is. Once you start thinking about numbers, you automatically look for more, right? Well, then we wondered, how many years has this podcast been around? Well, turns out, surprise, we had no idea. This month, May 2023, marks the 15th anniversary of Sound School, slash how sound slash saltcast 15. Jay joked that that's a lot in podcast years, and he's right. Well, next question is, how should we celebrate a 15th anniversary? I considered asking Ira Glass to pop out of a cake, but we checked the budget, and that's not going to happen. Cake, Cake's expensive. But then I thought maybe I could scrounge together a slew of my favorite informative and provocative clips about the craft of audio storytelling, a highlight reel from 15 years of interviews with people like Chad Abramrod or Stephanie Fu or maybe Chenjirai Kumunika or Bill Seemering, who wrote NPR's mission statement. Or how about Elise Spiegel of Invisibilia fame? Part of being a good interviewer is learning to kind of separate yourself and, and, and watch the way that you're responding to what they're saying so that you speak your natural responses, and, and like when something comes into your head, you have to say it out loud to them in a nice way, but you have to say it out loud to them. And then you have an authentic exchange and you give them an opportunity to, to answer whatever it is that everybody's wondering about. I must have a metric ton of quotes from over the years, like the chat I had 10 years ago with Nick Vanderkoek of Love & Radio, who struggled to define the show even though he'd been making it for years. I think at its core, it's it's an experimental. I'm like, I don't know if I should be like going away from this word experimental, because I think it's. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it anymore. Um, In fact, it took Nick, but essentially, a solid minute and thirty four seconds uh, to land on this description of the podcast. I would call Love and Radio a very musically inclined nonfiction radio experience. Um, well, do you have any questions for me before we get started, or? No. All right. I tried to tell you the other day when you called. It's good to bring money. Yeah. But you didn't f-ing listen to me on that one. You didn't have to. What I was after in my conversation with Nick him. was an explanation as to why the show is so no. glitchy. No. Why distort tape? Why are the cuts so audible? Why are some mixes so out of whack? Let me. I'll, I'll tell you what. Why don't I have? 
Noah, go grab us some beers. I'm not drinking beer. I drink tequila. Okay. You want to go grab some tequila? Sure. You want to borrow a pistol? You want to borrow a vest? You know, one thing that uh, I became really fascinated with is this this idea of the of the editor as a character. You know, when you're watching uh, a movie, you are more intrinsically aware of the director's hand um, than you are with a, a non-narrated radio piece, I, I find. Because all of the edits are just so incredibly apparent. You know, any, any, any time there's like a jump cut or any kind of editing at all, you're aware of the decisions that are going into that. And you're aware of this sort of like behind the scenes hand guiding you and saying, hey, look at this. Hey, pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. And, you know, in, in radio, we are both blessed and cursed with this ability to really, to really hide the seams. It can be much more smooth. We don't have to incorporate as many tricks in order to hide the edits that we're doing, um, which can be really great because it's like you can just take out all the ums and no one notices. Um, but at the same time, I think there is something that's lost in that. And so that's something that we tried to incorporate into the show was was how can we focus on whether through like blips or noise or... Um, you know, non, non-semantic speech um, kind of show off those particular seams. Here's another quote I could feature on a best of. It's from Leela Day. She's one of the hosts and producers of The Stoop. It's a podcast that starts conversations about what it means to be black, as they put it. Leela and I talked about using the pronoun I, the first person in her reporting, like a piece she made for KALW that was called The Problem of Sounding White. It was interesting because when I pitched the story, I, I was like, you know, I really want to do this piece about like sounding white. And everyone, people in the newsroom were like, about like accent, about your accent. And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, about like, y- you know, your your tone. I'm like, no. And I couldn't explain it. It was one of those, it was one of those like really half-baked pitches. It wasn't even a pitch. It was just like a thought. Um, but I remember saying it in an editorial meeting. Um and I remember, you know, the editors kind of saying like, yeah, Leela, come back to us when you figure out what you're talking about, you know, and you just like kind of going, yeah, I need to like actually figure out how to pitch this and not just randomly bring it up in a, in a large editorial meeting about sounding white. So I, I, I went and I sat down and I thought like, what am I trying to talk about? And I said, I'm trying to talk about the fact that people will always tell me growing up that I sounded white and why... I wanted to get into why they said that and how it affected me and how it might affect other kids. So I started the piece with opening up with, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, a lot of people told me I sounded white. Growing up, I heard plenty of jokes about the way I spoke. Listen to how you talk like a white girl. Who do you think you is? You sound white when you're on the phone. But I couldn't help the way I sounded. It's a default voice, just how I speak. So yeah, I could do this all day long, play clips until I was blue in the face, but who wants to listen to a pile of random quotes from old episodes, as good as they might be? Instead, for the 15th anniversary of this podcast, I should just tell a story. I mean, hello, it seems obvious since that's what Sound School is all about. 
So tooling around on blue highways, that old hard drive, I found the very first episode of SaltCast from May of 2008. It features one of my favorite student-produced stories from back when I was teaching more. In fact, it's so good. For years, I played this story in workshops as an example of excellent writing and narrating and reporting and the use of scenes. All of it. So set the Wayback Machine. To mark Sound School's 15th anniversary, here's episode one of the SaltCast. I called it Getting In. Welcome to the SaltCast. It's produced by SALT, the SALT Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine, and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. This is the first time SALT and PRX have worked together like this. And in fact, this is the very first SALTCast. So thanks for being there right from the get-go. And of course, we hope you'll subscribe to all the SALTCasts. Rather than start by telling you about the SALTCast, what you can expect, what it's all about, let's just do it, okay? Matt Largie was a student at SALT in the fall of 2004, and in the lingo that we use at SALT, Matt got in. I don't mean he, uh, he got accepted to the radio program here. I mean in terms of his story and his fieldwork, he got in. He got close. And for documentary work, that's key. It's part of what separates documentary from daily reporting. Matt's story focuses on Bill Picard. Bill is a motivational speaker who can't talk. As you might imagine, that got Matt's attention. It also got the attention of the class. We were all wondering how the heck you're going to produce a piece on someone who can't talk. But nevertheless, Matt gave Bill a call. They started hanging out, doing interviews, recording daily life. And over time, Matt slowly got in. Well, let's take a listen. Let's listen for how close Matt got. This is Five Things by Matt Largy. When Bill Picard was 16, he and his grandmother wrote down the five things he most wanted to do in his life. Be independent, graduate from college, have a meaningful career, buy his own house, and finally find a serious relationship and get married. Kind of typical American dream type stuff, right? Well, maybe for most of us, but Bill isn't exactly your typical American. Bill can't walk, he can't stand up, he can't use his hands, and he can't speak. Bill was born with cerebral palsy, or CP. It's a neurological disorder that's left him with little control of his body. Here's Bill. I am Bill Picard and I have spasticity cerebral palsy. With spasticity cerebral palsy, your muscles are always working, so your metabolism is always higher. That means I can eat anything I want and won't gain weight. Ha, ha, ha. Bill uses a computer mounted on his wheelchair to type out what he's trying to say. He can only type about 10 words a minute, so what you just heard was prepared ahead of time. When he's not using the computer, Bill sounds like this. One more thing. Bill's also a motivational speaker. I speak about life's many challenges. Today, I am going to share some of my life experiences to give a deeper understanding of people who are different from most others. It's been 18 years since Bill wrote the list with his grandmother. At 34, he's crossed off at least two items on his list. He's graduated from college with a business degree and owns an apartment building in Lewiston where he rents out rooms, mostly to students at the local college. He lives by himself here on the first floor of the building. The apartment's dark, sparsely decorated. The hallways are wide and the furniture is spaced far apart so Bill can get his wheelchair around. He's brushing his teeth and getting ready for the day with one of his personal care assistants, Eddie Gray Fox. The most exciting part of the day, brushing your teeth. 
Because of his CP, Bill needs help. A lot of help. His muscles don't always do what he wants them to. It's gotten progressively worse since he was a child. The only time Bill can't motivationally speak to me. Eddie has to help Bill do everything from taking a shower, to eating breakfast, to drinking a glass of water. So we would get up around 10 o'clock. If there's a speech, then generally that means we have to get up earlier. Bill generally has a shower. After that, he has cereal, and we start talking about whatever we're going to do for the day. And then we have to look at getting to wherever it is we need to go. Outside, Eddie opens up the wheelchair lift on the passenger side of Bill's big white van. After Bill's settled in the back, Eddie puts on the hazard lights and backs out of the driveway. Bill needs to go and talk to Elizabeth Combs, who is a voc rehab counselor, about his business and what he's done so far and what he needs. Huh, Bill? Yeah. Recently, Bill decided to start his own nonprofit company so he can work as a motivational speaker full-time. Right now, he's looking for funding to start the business. The speaking's only been sort of a side project since he started doing it about 10 years ago. He got it started after taking a speech class in college. At some point, you realize what you enjoy doing. For me, it was the first time I got up and spoke in front of a group. I really enjoyed that experience, so I started to do more in my spare time. Not long after, a professor at the university invited Bill to come speak to her education class. Soon, Bill was getting paid for his speaking. Here's Bill's dad, Roy Picard. It was something he could do that people just clammed up and listened to him. There's something about Billy and that mechanical voice. When he gets in front of a group and starts speaking with that, he gets everybody's attention. After people get to know someone with disabilities, they don't see the disabilities as much and begin to feel comfortable with them. I've seen him speak, and it's really great because he's very good with an audience, which is strange because he can't talk to them. That's Bill's best friend, Zach Lamprin. His eyes do a lot of talking for him. There's still passion in the speech because of the way it's written and the way he looks when he's giving it. Bill and Eddie arrive at the Career Center in Auburn, which is part of the State Division of Vocational Rehabilitation. The agency helps disabled people learn new job skills and find work. So the issue is... In the meeting, the counselor seems skeptical of the prospects of making money doing motivational speaking. She points out that most public schools, where Bill would be most likely to speak, often have very tight budgets and may not be able to afford to pay for the speeches. Outside after the meeting, Bill's disappointed and angry that things didn't go the way he planned. What do you think? Do you think it's bullshit? Yeah. What, the rules? Everything? But as they drive away, they both seem to shrug off the warnings. Life has many challenges, but it is how you deal with these challenges are what form you into the person you are going to be. It's hard to know what to think or how to act when you're around Bill. Even though his movements are spastic and you might think he's not capable of social interaction, his eyes say different. When you meet him, he makes eye contact and he holds it. And you can tell, he really wants to talk to you. Baby back pork ribs. Here, in the Hannaford supermarket in Auburn, engaging other people isn't really an option. People avoid him in the aisles. Children stare as he and Eddie decide which can of sliced peaches to buy. A big one? 
it is really too bad that most people have no idea how people get cerebral palsy or what this is. I think of myself as being a regular person who needs help once in a while. This is what I want people to think of me as a person, not someone with a disability. But it seems most people don't think of him that way. And that makes meeting his fifth goal, getting married, kind of complicated. Marie 106, please. Marie 106. Thank you. About a year ago, Bill made a date through an online personal service, but he called it off. He says he doesn't remember why, but Zach says he does. He doesn't feel that someone could look past his exterior and just love him for who he is. And I'm sad for him for that. Because, I mean, Bill is such a great guy. He's fully capable of finding someone to appreciate him, but getting him to believe that is very difficult. You're trying. Yeah. You're trying. But then you call off the dates. And you sabotage yourself. You say how, you tell everybody how confident you are, how great your life is, and then really deep inside you don't feel that, that all of that is worth what it really is. Be independent, graduate from college, have a meaningful career, buy a house, find a serious relationship, and get married. That might sound like a lot for someone as severely handicapped as Bill, but he doesn't let his disability stop him. He compares himself with other people earning a living. And I I had the education, and, and I've got to be able to do more. Again, Bill's dad, Roy Picard. And I'm trying to get him to realize that that there's still a lot of value for what he's been able to do. So um, I don't want to quell his dreams, but sometimes I wonder whether we instilled too many, made him feel, yes, like you can feel anything that anybody else feels, and you got to have some dreams. But he actually bought in that he could do everything that anybody else can do. And maybe that's why Bill's done so much of what he set out to do 20 years ago. As for what remains, well, he'll keep working on that. The only difference between you and me is that I need help to do things that I want to do, and I look a little different. I think this goes for a lot of people who have disabilities. People just do not realize that we have goals and ambitions in our lives, too. For Salt Radio, I'm Matt Largy. That's Five Things by Matt Largy, produced in 2004. You're listening to The Saltcast from PRX and the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. I'm Rob Rosenthal. I want to rewind for a second and play you a clip from this piece that strikes me every single time I hear it. The most exciting part of the day, brushing your teeth. That's Bill Picard brushing his teeth with his assistant, Eddie. Think about it. When was the last time you had someone miking you in a bathroom while you brushed your teeth? And that's only one of several remarkable moments that Matt captured on tape. Matt followed Bill around a supermarket and observed uh, the public reaction to Bill. Matt was there when business meetings didn't turn out so well. And Matt's mic was on when Bill's friend Zach called him on the carpet. You're trying. Yeah. You're trying. But then you call off the dates. And you sabotage yourself. When Matt first started spending time with Bill and Eddie, and by time I mean hours, many, many hours over many, many days, when Matt first started spending time there, the interviews were cordial but not very deep. You know, they were trying to be polite. They, I, I suppose they were trying to tell me what they thought that I wanted to hear. 
Matt says it took quite a while to get past this stage, the the guest stage, if you will. In fact, Matt thinks they didn't really start to relax around his mic until he relaxed. Maybe the fact that they became comfortable simply had to do with the fact that I became comfortable. Uh, You know, when I first went in there, this was like my first serious attempt at like, you know, uh, doing a a radio documentary. And, and, you know, I I was terrified that I was going to, you know, screw it up somehow um, and like say something or do something that would, you know, basically end that process that would, you know, destroy that relationship uh, between myself and, and Bill and Eddie. Of course, Matt didn't blow it. Five things is now required pre-semester listening for SALT students, and Matt is now a reporter for KUTFM in Austin, Texas. So, did you kind of figure out what this SALT So there you go. That's the first episode of Sound School, back when we called the show SALTcast. I hadn't heard it in some time, and listening to it now, I had to laugh, because not much has changed in 15 years, has it? The format of Sound School feature a story, focus on a particular aspect of that story, and interview the producer. Those elements are still the core elements of the show 15 years later. I think I lean a lot more heavily on interviews now, and I try as best I can to tell a story about the storytelling more than I did in that episode. But it might be that the name of this podcast has changed more than the content. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that's what it is. It probably goes without say, but I'm going to say it. There's a lot to comb through in the archives, a lot to inspire and say, ah, huh, that's an interesting way to do things. Or, oh, wow, I'm going to steal that idea. You can find all of the back catalog of Sound School and How Sound at transom.org. Saltcast is a little different. Those have practically disappeared into the internet ether. Fortunately, I rarely throw things away, so I have them all on blue highways. And I grab the first five episodes, the one we just heard. There's another about producing a non-narrated story, another about reporting on someone who's visually impaired. You can listen to all five of them at the post for this episode of Sound School at transom.org. Before I wrap up, would you do me a favor? As you comb through the archive and you listen to old episodes, please raise a gl- You know, actually forget that. Let's do it right now. I have my red water bottle right here. It used to give me a nice chime when I tapped it, but I ran over at my car and now all I get is this uninspiring clank. <laughs> Regardless, it still works. And I'm raising it here in the studio at WCAI. Grab your glass or mug or cup and raise it up, will you? Hold it there. Cheers to you, John Barth. John worked at PRX back in the day. This podcast was his idea. He also edited my scripts for many years. Thank you, John. Thanks for being such a cheerleader of this show. Okay, keep your glass up, please. Cheers also to Carrie Hoffman, the CEO at PRX, who has supported this program since the start. And to Genevieve Sponsler, senior managing producer at PRX Productions, who takes a red pen to my scripts. Okay, I know your arm might be getting a little tired, but keep it up a little longer. My eternal thanks to my fellow radio travelers in Woods Hole at Transom. Jay Allison, Transom's founder and fearless leader who also marks up my scripts. Jennifer Jarrett, the managing editor at Transom. She oversees the website and makes the posts for the show look great. You are appreciated, Jennifer. And thanks to Transom's senior editors, Vicki Merrick and Sid Lewis as well. And to you, Sound School, 
How Sound Saltcast listeners. Thanks for listening all these 15 years. I'm Rob Rosenthal. From PRX. And Transom.org.